I think the idea here is if he already has some folks helping him part-time, are they task-level, project-level, or owner-level thinkers, right? Because back in the day, I had eight or nine task-level thinkers, and it was great. They were inexpensive. I was doing the four-hour workweek thing. The problem was is I was the only one that was thinking about projects and certainly the only one thinking at an owner level. And so anything that wasn't within this really well-defined process bubbled up to me. And that got really old, and it wasn't fun. And my four-hour work week, which was actually is eight to 12 hours a week at the time, my week was filled with a bunch of crap that I didn't want to do. It wasn't interesting work. It was answering questions that, frankly, a project-level thinker could have answered. Welcome back. It's Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm Rob Walling. Thanks so much for joining me this week. If you haven't checked us out on Twitter, at Startups Pod, you get to see every week a little 60 to 90 second snippet of the episodes and they're video snippets. So you get to see my cool background with my Millennium Falcon kind of blueprint-ish thing, my Beatles gold record up behind me. And uh, of course, the Startups for the Rest of Us, episode one album cover, What is a Micropreneur? Thanks to producer Xander for having that LP pressed of our first episode. This week, I'm diving into listener questions. As always, video and audio questions go to the top of the stack. You can ask questions by emailing questions at startupfortherestofus.com or heading to the website and click on Ask a Question. First question is from Josh Duffy, longtime listener. And he is asking about whether it's worth having multiple LLCs. Hey, Rob, my name is Josh. I'm the founder and CEO of a SaaS product that I've been working on since 2013. We're currently doing 25K MRR and it's under an LLC. And I also have one other super small SaaS product that only does about 1K ARR. It was an early side project um, back in the day that still earned some revenue. So my question is about accounting and uh, bookkeeping. So I know you recommend for different SaaS projects to have uh, different accounts and everything set up so it's super clean so you could potentially sell one of your projects later. And so I recently spun off a module of my larger SaaS project last year into its own standalone SaaS. It's starting to take off. We've got five customers so far. So I'm curious, just with all the effort involved, if you'd recommend uh, making this transition at 1, 5, 10K MRR, or maybe once you have some product market fit and when it lines up with a fiscal year. And then a follow-up question, would you recommend having separate LLCs? Um, I'm a solo founder, so separate LLCs that are just owned by one holding company for tax uh, simplicity. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks for everything you do. I love listening to the show. Hope you have a good one. Thanks. Thanks for the question, Josh. That's a good one. I should start by saying I'm not a lawyer, not legal advice, all the usual caveats. I will say if I was in your shoes and I only had one SaaS app, so I did not have the 25K MRR app, but I just had one doing 1K ARR. I personally don't even think I would have an LLC. Um, Like in California, the fee for an LLC is $800 a year and other states vary. But just the headache of having to set up the legal structure and maintain it personally wouldn't be worth it at that point. And I would just let it flow in in the US. It flows to your Schedule C, I believe it is, on your taxes. And so that revenue just almost comes in like 1099 type revenue. 
And so given that you have a business that is already under an LLC on its own, I would consider just having this side business just go to the Schedule C and it kind of uses, you know, obviously you'd want a separate bank account for it and I'm assuming a separate Stripe account, but you know, the cost and the headache and the hours of filling out LLC filings and all this stuff, I act like it's it's perhaps more than it is, but I've I've had several LLCs running at once and it winds up being a pretty big headache. So so personally, unless there was a compelling reason or I felt like there was extra exposure, right? Because LLCs are supposed to offer you this exposure or this this firewall between personal and business stuff such that if the business gets sold, they can't pierce it. Now, single member LLCs, I've heard they often get pierced and in certain states, they just are viewed as it's a personal thing and it's a, it's a, it's a shield for shield's sake and so they pierce it pretty easily. But I don't know, I would either just have it in my Schedule C and own it personally or I guess you could attach it under the other LLC, which is fine. I guess I don't see much reason to do that if you don't need to because it does muddy the waters if you ever want to sell that, that 25K MRR app and it's all clean right now adding another product in there if it's not affiliated with it or you don't want to be you know have to sell them both at once it is all undoable it's not that big of a deal but personally i'd probably just kind of have it as a side thing much like i owned you know half a dozen websites back in the early 2000s and they were throwing off hundreds or low thousands of dollars a month and at the time i didn't have an llc i had a consulting llc that i was using but even that i did consulting work for four or five years before I started the LLC and I was doing six figures and it was just going, you know, to me personally. I think, it, look, it's great. If you can get an LLC in place and get all that stuff in place, it's fine. But I do think some people kind of pre-optimize some of these things where if the business never does anything, then you have to shut down the LLC and that's, you know, even more paperwork and time that you have to spend doing it. So thanks for the question, Josh. I hope that was helpful. Our next question is a video question from Ruth Main. Hi, Rob. My name is Ruth, and I'm actually calling in with a question sort of for my husband as even a little bit of a surprise for him. I don't know if you'll, this will end up on the show or not, but um, he runs his own business, a software that helps run livestock shows. His name is Josh, and he's listened for a long time. He kind of got me hooked, even though I'm not a software person at all. And he's just really in the grind right now. He's a few years in. The business is going really well, but he's just sort of constantly inundated with little fixes and support issues, even though he has a few people helping him part-time, that is just a constant stress that never allows him to kind of have the freedom or the time to work on improvements and updates that would alleviate some of those problems. So it kind of feels like he's in a cycle of just constantly trying to keep up, you know, and keep his head above above water versus getting ahead. So if you just had any tips for or encouragement for how to make the time to make those needed updates when it feels like you don't have time. And I know you talk about this a lot, so it's not really a new question, but just looking for a way for him to kind of have that time and to encourage him in that direction. So again, his name is Josh and he runs an app for livestock shows. Thanks. I love this question. Thanks, Ruth, for sending it in. Hi, Josh. I hope this is a nice surprise for you. What a what a nice uh, a nice gesture for Ruth to send that in. And I love it, Ruth. You said he's kind of got you hooked, even though you're not a software person. That's the cool part, right? Is like startups for the rest of us is can be just about entrepreneurship for a lot of people. And I know many non software founders who've never planned to launch software companies who can apply the lessons that uh, that we cover on this show. 
to their business. So yeah, this is tough. And you know, I honestly, I feel for Josh. I think the idea here that I have is if he already has some folks helping him part-time, are they task level, project level, or owner level thinkers, right? Because back in the day I had eight or nine task level thinkers and it was great. They were inexpensive. I was doing the four hour work week thing. The problem was, is I was the only one that was thinking about projects and certainly the only one thinking at an owner level. And so anything that wasn't within this really well-defined process bubbled up to me and that got really old and it wasn't fun. And my four hour work week, which was actually is eight to 12 hours a week at the time, my, my week was filled with a bunch of crap that I didn't want to do. It wasn't interesting work. It was answering questions that frankly, a project level thinker could have answered. And so eventually I had the budget to then hire someone who was more of a project level thinker who could manage and deal with a lot of the, uh, the task level thinkers. And so I'm wondering if that's perhaps an avenue um, that Josh could go down. I think a lot of us make the mistake of hiring too many junior people because they are less expensive and you meet a person who has this great attitude and maybe they're your friend or maybe there's someone you get along with and you're like, well, I can teach them to do this. And you're right, you can. Problem is it slows you down and then you essentially become kind of their, more than just their supervisor, their boss, you become almost a mentor and they turn to you for a lot of things that a senior person may not do. And so I wonder if, you know, there's these bug fixes and support issues that are coming to you. Is there a way to hire someone who is more of a mid-level or a senior developer who can, who can handle these things? Really, you, there's two ways that I've heard about it. And one is the way that I structured it at Drip, which was that we had a junior developer who they were assigned all the kind of customer facing stuff. They were, you know, level two support. So level one, tier one support was the, our support person answering email. And if there was a technical issue, they couldn't troubleshoot, then they would escalate it to this junior developer who would then dig into the code, figure out how to fix it. If they needed to rely on a senior dev to get input, then they would. But if not, they would push that uh, pull request, you know, push it for review, and then we push it and the bug would get fixed without a senior dev ever having to get involved. And that's how I'm thinking about Josh, right, being the senior dev in this case where he can consult or he can offer advice, but really someone who is more junior might be driving that fix. The other way that I've heard support and bug fixes handled by dev teams is that it rotates. And every week or every two weeks, one developer is basically assigned all the tickets that are coming in. And so the support person or team knows who is on call in essence. And those are funneled to that person. It's good practice to continue to um, you know, be in the code base and, and answering support tickets. But it's not something that a developer, a senior developer, wants to do 40 hours a week, right? They're there to write code and build things. And so there, there's this balance. My gut is that, Josh, you're hanging on to too much stuff. And I know you've heard me say it, but it's like you have to... You have to figure out how to not just delegate tasks, but actually start to delegate ownership, right? And delegate project level thinking and initiative. And whether that means not having a few people and just consolidating to one person who's helping you, or whether that means rotating these responsibilities through your team 
to where support tickets don't always go to you. You can't just be the front line and take the bullets all the time because you can grind it out and you know how to do it, but it's going to lead you to burnout. And it makes it hard to lead a normal life. It makes it hard to relax in the evening when you're hanging out with your friends or when you go on vacation with your family. You're constantly thinking about your business because it relies so much on you. I'm guessing you're relatively early stage. I don't know the the stage of your business, so I don't want to act like you can just hire five people and hand it off to them. I realize that's not a, a realistic approach for so many bootstrappers. It's the approach that that I had to take, right? I had to be the backstop. But over the years, I learned that the more I was able to delegate, the more advanced project and owner-level thinkers I was able to hire and kind of the more senior people, the better off I wound up doing. So thanks again, both Josh and Ruth. Love having you two as listeners. And uh, it's a good question. I hope that was helpful. This week's sponsor is Kelsis. Kelsis provides engineering teams for startup success, and they stick with their clients for the long term. Kelsis has worked with clients through nine acquisitions, and every time their work has passed due diligence and security audits by big audit firms and public companies. Working with Kelsis starts with a half-hour walkthrough call where you tell them about your startup, and after that, they usually begin a three-week fixed-bid discovery project. Go to kelsis.com slash startup to schedule your walkthrough call. That's K-E-L-S-U-S dot com slash startup. Hey, Rob, this is Matt Lasker. Thank you so much for letting me ask you a question. And really, I want to say I appreciate everything you do for founders like me out there trying to help us kind of find our way through this process. Okay, so we are really wanting to know, uh, get some advice about the MVP process development in particular. We are trying to build a app that helps coaches have their players engage with their playbook. Right now, these coaching apps are, are nice and beautiful, but they're really made for the coaches. There's really little engagement from the player side. So we want to create a game, a mobile app that players can play, but it's based on their coach's playbook, basically. So we've talked to a lot of developers, keep getting the same amount of kind of cost right around 80000 to one hundred, which is not realistic for us to make our MVP. We are definitely of the mind that we want to make this MVP with a few core items so we can get it out in front of players and coaches and let them tell us how to make it better. So, you know, 80,000, just not really realistic for us on that. We did find uh, one company that specializes in rapid prototyping that can do it for even less than half the cost, which is great, but they are very adamant that, you know, this is not long-term product that that we can sell. It would take some additional development or just scrapping it and then finding money to build the whole new real, the real application afterward. So I'm just having a hard time uh, balancing that in my head. You know, 40K for a prototype, we want to prove it. It seems like a lot. And especially if you layer on the fact that we probably won't see any value after that. Obviously, proving the concept is invaluable. I get that. But it just, I'm having a hard time kind of <laughs> quantifying that. So I'd love your opinion. Thanks for the question, Matt. Yeah, this, this one's really interesting. It's actually a tough question because it's a lot of money to put at risk. And given how startups are so unpredictable, and that the odds are that they probably won't work out. You're going to be selling to schools, I'm guessing. I don't imagine, I mean, maybe maybe the coaches themselves or, you know, I don't know if the school's going to have to approve it, but it's tough to get money out of schools often. So I, I guess I don't want to go down the road of thinking through the business case for this. I, I really do want to just <laughs> answer a question about getting the MVP out. It pains me to think of you spending $40,000 or $80,000 of your own money 
to kind of prove an MVP. And I, I think that's what you're getting at is you have that same feeling. Typically in this case, what I see is that either the person, the founder, you, you know, learns how to code well enough to build something that people can use. I would say, oh, build prototypes and show them how it's going to work. But I get it. It's coaches and kids or coaches and players. I don't know if you're talking, you know, major leagues or college or whatever it is, but they're going to have to see it in this case. And so I'm, I'm wondering, as a founder, a lot of folks are able to put these out because they do learn to code just well enough, or they bring on a co-founder who can build it, which is a whole other podcast topic to go down, right? Is like how you would find that founder and how do you know they're good? I would say that there are folks in like MicroConf Connect, there's more than 3,000 bootstrap, mostly bootstrap founders. And some folks in there, there's a, there's a lot of developers, right? It's probably 80 plus percent developers. And some folks are looking to come on with a non-technical co-founder and uh, and team up. So you could certainly, I don't know if it's a hiring channel or if, it, honestly, if there's a co-founder channel, I'm not in it right at this minute, but that's an interesting thought, right? But you have to bring something too, right? Which I think you're already doing. You're basic, you have to bring some validation and the leads and that you're going to sell and, you know, all this stuff to, in order to ask a developer to spend X amount of months, $80,000 worth of, of months to, to build out the app. The other thing I was thinking about is there's a bunch of no code app builders and I'm not an expert on these. And so I, while I wish I could recommend one to you, I went to Google and typed in no code iOS app builder. And of course, there's these lists of the top 22 iOS app builders. And each of these is going to have a limited feature set. It can kind of do one or two or three things and that's it, right? So it's not going to be completely custom. But I would ask myself, is there a way where I could build enough of an MVP with one of these app builders to use that as as the MVP, or is there a way I could hire someone on Upwork or find them in MicroConf Connect who is a no-code builder and get them, pay them for a few hours of, of consulting to say, is this even possible? You know, what could we build with no-code given your knowledge of these tools? I had Helen Riles on this podcast, it's probably 12, 18 months ago. She's a perfect example of someone who knows no-code really well. And so someone like her or someone you find in the no-code space, it's a great community in general, I think could be beneficial to give you an idea of is this if you spend a few hundred bucks to get a yes or no because then you know that idea may be harebrained or it may be the solution to all your problems so to speak the only other option i could think of is is there a way that you don't build it as an app but that you build it as a mobile responsive web app and then you don't have to go through the app store and it's just a url that the coaches would hit to log in and do things, and it is a URL that the players would hit to see the playbooks or whatever. And this may be reaching, so I'm I'm really just spitballing here. But the reason I throw that out is because I think that building a mobile responsive web app is going to be easier and you're going to get more functionality than if you try to build an actual iOS and, God forbid, also an Android app, you know, if you need something to be compatible with both. I know a lot of the app builders do both, but I just know that once you get into the mobile app world, things are, they are more complex and more challenging. And I think there are fewer people with that expertise than there are who could who could no code build a web app or at least, you know, I met when I hear eighty to a hundred thousand dollars to build like a working prototype, that sounds insane to me. Like so expensive. And I think what if it was a web app? Could it be done for a tenth or a quarter of the cost? 
I mean, in my experience, probably, you know, probably fire, finding a good freelancer through a recommendation. Again, I keep saying MicroConf Connect because that's where there's 3,000 SaaS founders hanging out who are bootstrapping, mostly bootstrap, who listen to this podcast and who are helping each other out with this kind of stuff. So whether you found a freelancer in there or you find a recommendation to one, that's one way to go. You could also go to Upwork, you can go to Indie Hackers, go to the Dynamite Circle. You know, there's a bunch of communities where folks are going to be able to, to help guide you. So uh, I'm glad you wrote in with this because I'm, I'm sure there are other people out there with this exact question. And I think my reaction of, oh my gosh, these numbers just sound expensive. Of course, hiring a full service agency that's going to deliver everything. Yeah, I, I get it. I, I ran a micro agency back in the day. So I know what the, you know, what the margins are and how that works. But paying this much for an MVP, unless it's really complex, feels kind of like the funded approach to doing things. You know, it's not the bootstrap, mostly bootstrap, capital efficient way. And hopefully that's what you're, you know, why you're asking me is because I'm trying to think of how would I have done this years ago when I didn't have that kind of money to drop on a prototype. So there's a lot to think about here, Matt, but I appreciate your question. I'm glad you wrote in and I hope uh, some of those ideas were helpful. My next question is from a longtime listener named Scott, and he's asking about transactional and marketing emails, whether they should be on the same domain. He says, we're a startup. We're getting ready to start sending more marketing emails very soon. Should we be using the same domain name, our .com, for, and he lists three things, corporate emails, so that's like your internal emails you would use in Gmail, Google Apps Suite, Outlook, whatever you're using. Marketing emails, we all know what those are, right? Drip, MailChimp, et cetera. Transactional emails. And these are emails that are sent from, if you're a SaaS app, you're sending billing receipts or you're sending onboarding emails or you're sending notification, hey, someone just signed up for the this or that. If not, so the question is, should we be using the same domain name, r.com, for all three of these? If not, what is the best strategy? We're already using the .com for corporate emails. Should we create emails as a subdomain for transactional marketing or both? I thought maybe some of your drip experience might come into play here. So of those three, the biggest risk is marketing emails. And honestly, usually I would send all of them from the same domain. I'm just not that worried about it. The place where I would tend to break them into a separate domain is if you're sending cold email, because that is where you're going to get the spam complaints and that can impact your sending strategy. And if, if you don't maintain and be mindful of the health of your marketing list, it can as well. So the most dangerous one is marketing. If you want to separate that out, you can. But I'll admit, I, it's not something we did with Drip. It's not something we do with MicroConf. It's not something we do with Tiny Seed. And to be honest, like corporate and transactional emails winding up in spam is pretty low because they're so targeted. So that's kind of, you know, it's an it depends, risk tolerance, blah, blah, blah. But I, most companies that I see have their corporate marketing and transactional emails all on the same domain. And then they start thinking about it when they're sending cold emails. They start thinking about breaking it apart. So thanks for that question, Scott. Hope that was helpful. And my final question of the day comes from Philippe, who's asking about planning for a very large project. He says, hey, Rob, when starting up a project, do you have any tools you like for organizing the steps of the code? I've always just cranked out hours and hours of code, but I'm wondering if there are tools that you like that perhaps tie into Gmail or just how to plan for a project starting from scratch. Do you lay out in a calendar which features need to be built by which date? Do you have something that allows the UX team to run parallel to the dev team? I've tried Trello, but didn't really like their UX. And the ideal solution, I think, would be some sort of to-do list that ties into a Google Calendar. Thanks for your help. Interesting question. I have never had anything that tied into a calendar. Back in the day, I used to use an Excel spreadsheet and then move to Google Sheets, where I would have each feature and then my estimate 
and then how many hours I had put into it and how many hours I thought were remaining. And then you could, there was like a calc date feature and it would add up all the hours. Oh, it's like work days, I think it was. And it would add up all the hours and tell me what day based on these estimates, if they were accurate, when that would be finished. But it didn't do individual, like I didn't calculate it for each individual feature. I guess you could. That's a pretty simple way to do it. In fact, Joel Spolsky has an article on his spreadsheet and I just took it and edited it. And I loved that when I was consulting because it would give me a pretty good idea. I would do my estimates and then I would submit to the client, hey, this is going to cost 40 grand and here's why, because here's the hours we're throwing at it. And then I could see if we were on track ahead or behind. It was a very simple way to do it. I really enjoyed it. These days there are other tools, bottom line. And GitHub Issues is one that is really good. And in fact, it's what we ultimately wound up using at Drip. We had an engineering team of, I think it was, I almost forget, but it's like 18-ish, 18, 20 people by the time we left. And we had a UX team and we had all types of people working in tandem. And GitHub Issues was what we what we rolled that on. So I think you should, you should definitely look at that. What I don't remember is if there were calendaring tied to it because we worked in sprints. So I forget if it was like two or three weeks so we didn't say this feature is done on this day. It was kind of like once it was done, then it was QA'd, and then it went through code review. And then we, if it was complex, we'd put it on staging. Otherwise, we'd push it to production. And you know, there was kind of this process that we had, but we didn't, we didn't try to pinpoint it down to exact days when exact features were going to be complete because we just didn't need to. We pushed it to production as many times a day as we needed as features were complete. And so there was, there was no reason to plan to that level of specificity. Other tools people use include Jira from Atlassian. It's a little, you know, bit of an older tool. I know that Fogbugs back in the day, also an older tool, is, is what we had used before GitHub issues. And in fact, we actually used CodeTree.com, which is a tool Derek built on the side while we were building Trip. And he later sold that. I interviewed him about that very process on this podcast years ago. But he sold CodeTree, so there's new owners now. But it's basically built on top of GitHub issues and it adds some extra functionality. So that's that's an interesting play. I've heard some folks use Trello as well. And then Rike, W-R-I-K-E, is another one of those. Yeah, boy, there's Asana and Basecamp too. Some people use them. Basically, I could probably rattle off a hundred different tools, right, that are focused on this niche because there's a there's not much of a niche. It's a very horizontal play. Of, there's a lot of software developers in the world. There's a lot of software projects, and there are a lot of tools. So I don't want to overwhelm you, but there are many, many tools that are built almost exactly for this use case that you're describing. And I've tossed out a, a few of them here today. So I hope that was helpful. Thanks for the question. And that wraps up our episode for today. Thanks so much for joining me this week and every week. This is Rob Walling signing off from episode 609.